Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Canada has been talking about how to streamline access to care using queuing theories for more than 20 years now. Centralized wait lists have been proven to work in other jurisdictions, so why isn't Canada using them? We'll look into that. President Joe Biden once again declaring war on Canadian industry and trade with Buy America. And Canada and its NATO allies are struggling to shore Baltic defenses against Russian threats. Thomas Hughes, a postdoctoral fellow at the Canadian Defense and Security Network, will join us and talk about that. All coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The dominant uh, topic, of course, in this country right now still is healthcare and the potential deal. I, I suppose is way sh- the way we should characterize it uh, between the federal government and the provinces. As you've uh, heard on the news this morning, uh, Premier Ford and his health minister are going to be meeting with the uh, federal government representatives today uh, to talk about uh, a potential Ontario deal. They're going to one off these as we've talked about through. But that's that's the one thing, the money and the finances. And, and it, that's very important part of this. Absolutely. But it's how we deliver the health care that I think a lot of people are concerned about. And to that end, There was a a fascinating and I think very thought-provoking piece uh, that was published in the Star just the other day, Centralized centralized Wait Lists. Why isn't Canada using them right across this country? This is not a new idea, as pointed out in the article. And and I want to give all the options we possibly can here so that we have an educated opinion as to what we should be doing, because clearly what we've been doing for the last number of years just isn't working properly. Uh, the author of the piece is uh, Armin Yaslin, who's, a, a, of course, a, an advocate for... A, well, I guess common sense when it comes to an awful lot of these things. She's an economist and an Atkinson fellow on the future of workers. I mean, thank you for the time. It's great to have you on the show today. Terrific to be with you again, Billy. Um, but Listen, Billy, I'm sorry, Bill Kelly. That's, that's okay. That's, that's my <laughs> hockey name, so don't worry about that. So <laughs> let's, uh, let's circle back here. Um, as you point out in the piece, and I was interested because I remember covering the Romano Commission and the report that came out back in 2002, and we talked about this extensively. Uh, this idea of waitlist is not new, and it's something that some places have already done and done very effectively. Why isn't it even being discussed these days? You got me, Bill. I really don't know. Uh, it seems to me that there is a an insane choice being offered to people in Ontario, which is you can pay more for care, but we won't tell you where it's shortest in the public system. And, you know, we have in the past done really good jobs of uh, monitoring. You know, a centralized wait list basically brings together two pieces of very timely information. First of all, who needs what kind of care and how urgent is it? And where is the supply of providing that care on offer right now and available? And what are the wait times for other locations. And what that does is it permits you, it's like being in a deli. You know, you take a number and you wait. It's like going to an airport check-in or check-out counter. You get in a line to wait for the first person to serve you. You're not like, you don't know what the quality is of the service. As patients, we don't know who the doctors are that are out there that are providing this thing. When you do hear of a doctor that you're willing to wait for, nobody's saying, you can't wait. It's just that it's your call if you want to wait for two years instead of getting service in six months or in even six weeks, or if you are willing to travel even faster. Uh, though I recognize there are problems with all of those propositions, right? Like traveling without your family, traveling with your family, very expensive. But for example, there's people in Winnipeg that are being sent to Kenora, Ontario, which is just on the other side of the border in Ontario. Even though Kenora is a much smaller community, 
than uh, Winnipeg, it's got it it has regionalized access to like day surgeries like hip and knee replacements, and of course. We, we're not given that choice. We're just given the choice of, do you want to pay faster? Here's a private for-profit clinic. That is wasting our time and it is wasting our money and it is guaranteed to actually further hobble the public system because the people that are working in these private for-profit clinics didn't fall off a turnip truck. They came from the public system because they can make more money in the private system. So it, it's almost willful damage that is happening right now. And, and and I know you touch on that in the piece, and I think it's a very important part of the discussion here, is is the mindset of the people that are making the decisions and, and developing the policies here. And, and example, Ontario. I mean, we've seen this happen, haven't we, already? On a number of different things, I mean, the child care program itself. I mean, we were the last province to sign on uh, because uh, we had it stuck in our head, at least our government did anyway, that private sector uh, daycare had to be a big part of this. And that, they wanted to channel all the money from the feds into that. Uh, and that's not what it was supposed to be like, but they, they seem to be applying that same concept to healthcare. Do you know, Bill, this is a much broader discussion than what you've invited me to talk about. So you can stop me anytime you want. <laughs> but as an economist, I look at flows of capital all the time and not just labor markets and just seeing where the money is going. So for about 20 years, we had a lot of investment in oil and gas that dropped in 2015. It came back because of the war in Ukraine. For Since about 2010, we've had an enormous flood of cash into technology. That dropped in the last few months because of the nonsense that's going on in the technology field. You know where private equity is now eyeing where to put money and get returns and reap profits in, in housing and in healthcare. So just wait for the lobbyists to line up at the public trough saying, we can provide it faster, better, cheaper. Bill, there is no country in the world that has relied primarily on for-profit care and delivered faster, better, cheaper care to everyone. And that is the goal of healthcare, is making sure that everybody that is sick gets access to care. And and I made the point on the show yesterday, and I think it's, it bears repeating. Uh, we're not talking about the people in, in you know, for-profits as, as evil beings. They're not ogres and they're selfish. I mean, they made a choice, but as you say, there's more money to be made in that field. Uh, but there should, and I get that, if, if that's the way you want to go. I mean, we had a, a very well-respected doctor on the program yesterday uh, from St. Joe's Hospital here, and he was basically saying, look, at the for-profit thing's a great idea. You know, he had some of his students from McMaster that did this, and they're bright and brilliant, and they're going to be the future of this, and, but they're starting their own clinic. Good for them. But where's the investment in public health? It, it seem, seems almost non-existent now. Uh, in fact, it's worse than non-existent in the sense that uh, – the public system is so beleaguered that the natural magnet is to move over to the, you know, why did the chicken cross the road? Because it was safer on the side of the, the other side of the road. You, you've got more control over your hours. You get, make more money. The formula for keeping people in the public system is not difficult. Um, but if you're going to both open the floodgates to public financing, you and I are paying for these private for-profit clinics. Uh, the, Government of Ontario, in its infinite wisdom, has chosen to pay 30% more for cataract surgeries in a private for-profit clinic than it does in a hospital just to be able to incentivize more clinics to set up. Why are we doing that with our public money? And there's just, there's no accountability on this front. You know, as I was reading your piece last night, and uh, I, I thought... 
I got a quick anecdote here, political anecdote. When the Harris government got elected in the mid 1990s, do you remember there's this now famous story about the education minister that did this video that basically said, if you want to force a policy through, what you do is create a crisis. And then, oh my, yeah. exp- and, and then explain that my solution is going to fix the crisis. They've done that with healthcare. You know, they they put a ceiling on salaries for nurses. Well, of course, if you're getting slammed like that, and somebody offers you double the money or a little more, you're going to go. Uh, so they've created 100%. this crisis of their you, own you making. Just and now it, they're saying, right? "Well, we like, don't have I enough nurses." I actually remember in 1995, John Snowballin, who was the education yeah. minister, cutting something like two billion dollars out of the education budget and saying. For us to be able to do what we want to do, we have to create a crisis. And they did. And that funding for kids in school has never been reversed. Those those funding cuts have never been reversed by any government since 1995. So it's almost 30 years of wondering why the schools are so crappy. It was an effort to try and squeeze more people into the private system. And it worked to some degree. It's just that most people can't afford it. Which is which is the situation we're in now, and and we've already heard from our premier uh, when they have their sit down a little bit later on with their federal representatives uh, that he still wants to invest a good chunk of the money that's on the table for them right now into creating more for profit, not not to hire nurses for those uh, you know those ERs or ORs rather that are sitting vacant in in the hospitals that already exist. It's it's a mindset, it's a philosophy here that seems to be guiding them. I, I fear that you are right, and I fear there are no checks and balances. In what is occurring, even from the federal level, which to date has been the most progressive government I have seen in my lifetime, uh, in terms of what it's been able to do for people at the bottom and in the middle rather than at the top, uh, comparatively speaking, right? I'm not saying that they're they're angels, but just I've never seen as much activity to support people that don't have a lot of money from a federal government. They've come back into the fold. But the money that they put on the table on Tuesday, let's be totally clear, they're spending a lot of money in the next 10 years sending it to the provinces. The lion's share is unconditional money. There is approximately, if you average it out, $2.5 billion every year for 10 years to change the system. That's across the whole country. You know, how much money is a few hundred million dollars going to buy? How much change is a few hundred million dollars a year going to buy in Ontario? We're talking about the need for wholesale change. One of those things is the centralized wait list that I wrote about. It's something that is done routinely in Quebec and they have, they still have long waits, but you can at least choose where you're going to go because you know where the supply and the demand is. It's something that they've done in regions in Alberta but not across regions. It's something that we've tried in Saskatchewan from 2010 to 2015. Saskatchewan introduced a centralized wait list for all elective surgeries and dropped that list by 89% in five years and then just stopped doing it because they elected a new government with different priorities. If you do not maintain these lists on a daily basis, update them and make sure you've got the staffing instead of starving the staffing, you can't provide shorter wait times. But if you decide you want to do it, it can be done. The question is, why don't our governments want to do it? Why are we spending a dollar, as Tommy Douglas used to say, why spend a dollar when 99 cents will do? We are wasting our own money. We are wasting our time. And in many cases, we are wasting the quality of lives of our elderly and people with chronic illnesses. It is appalling that there isn't more accountability for this. I mean, I got the sense during this meeting on Tuesday with the premiers and the and the prime minister that they uh, they wanted to be 
it was almost like a love-in. I don't want to say anything that's going to get anybody else cross here, okay? And including the prime minister. I mean, they talked uh, going into that meeting as if, yeah, they're going to be strings attached. And the premier said, oh, yeah, that's okay. We're okay with that. I didn't hear about any strings. You know, I know he said, look, I want to make sure that you guys don't drop your the funding that you are contributing every year. There's no guarantee about that. Uh, that it's not going to be invested in private sector. It's going to go into public sector. I didn't hear one premier said, yeah, I'm going to be abide by that. I mean, it's, it's as you say, it's money on the table. And I don't know where it's going to go. And I don't think we anybody knows where it's going to go. I got a pretty good idea. And it may not be what was intended. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I, as, yeah, we, I think we both have a pretty good idea. And probably many of our listeners have got a pretty good idea, too. There is money on the table with strings, but it is eclipsed by the money that is on the table without strings. And so it's something that everybody can live with. Look, federal-provincial relationships are a long-term love affair, and they, it has to work. It can't not work. So it, it's like being in a very long-term relationship with changing partners in that relationship that the relationship itself has to last. And so it's kind of nice to see them acting like they don't hate one another because it wasn't that long ago that mm -hmm. there were several premiers You'll remember the cover on of McLean's where several conservative premiers were um, the caption on this picture was the resistance. And it was very much like the official opposition to the federal liberal party were the conservative premiers of the day. So we can't have governability when everybody's fighting with everybody. So that was actually welcome to see that they weren't fighting with one another openly. It was also completely predictable that more money will be asked for because the amount of money that is coming through, uh, particularly to buy change, is insufficient. I think they would even be willing to live with strings on the new money, but uh, maybe yes, maybe no. But as I say, the amount of money that is on the table, which is a formidable amount, most of it is totally, well, I, sh I shouldn't say totally unconditional. We do have the Canada Health Act, which prohibits user fees being charged. And some provinces, including some suppliers of primary care here in Ontario who are for profit, are actually charging extra fees and nobody's going after them. In BC, the provincial government is going after these providers. In Ontario, the Ontario government is not going after these providers. And I have not as yet seen the federal government indicating that it will step up to the plate as it did when Monique Bejan was the health minister. So, well, you know, there's a bit of a wait and see here where we go. But meantime, the erosion of confidence in the public system is ongoing. And like any relationship, what we expect is often what we get. And if we expect this system to continue to decline and become a system that you can only access if you have money, then we are actively watching the destruction of our collective achievement over the last 60 years. I, I just find that really sad. Well, and the cynic in me indicates that it almost seems to be a systematic you know, erosion of that system by certain governments, and, and I find that even more troubling. Uh, listen, a great piece, and, and thank you so much for writing it, uh, Armina. Thank you for, for taking some time with us. This is not the end of this discussion by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but we're tight on not. time. And <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for your next one. I'd love to have you back on the show so we can talk about uh, what the Premier is going to talk about going forward on this. I'd be I'd be very happy to have another conversation with you. You're you're a great host. You're a great interviewer. <laughs> well, you're a great guest, Armin. Thanks so much. Uh, that's a it, it, and it's got to be part of the discussion. Armin Yelanatsen, of course, is uh, somebody who's been with us many times and written about this, and, and and it's giving some perspective on this. 
and and th- that there can be a better way. It's just that they, they just governments, including the, the the federal government here, just seem to be looking at this in tunnel vision, and they don't want to open up to what other governments are doing and what other jurisdictions around the world are doing. As I've mentioned on this show many times, there are places in this world that do deliver healthcare better than we do. Why aren't we listening to them and talking to them? It's more than a rhetorical question these days. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There was a, a lot of shock and uh, disappointment, I guess, in the State of the Union address that uh, President Joe Biden uh, presented to uh, the Congress on Tuesday evening, uh, because uh, a, a good deal of the focus of it, actually the one that, that got the most applause on the, they actually measure this stuff, applause meters and the enthusiasm of the crowd, uh, was when he said, buy American. Uh, you know, and that's not going to happen anymore. We're not going to be flexible about this. It's buy American, period, end of sentence. And they just went crazy. So. From a patriotic standpoint, I suppose this is good politics and maybe good theater, uh, but is it really uh, good economic policy? Uh, because it's been attempted before and the rhetoric has been out there before. Uh, and uh, Canadians aren't going to be naive and say, oh, this is not going to happen. It's just you know, blowing hot air, but we need to be concerned. But uh, when you hear that stuff on a consistent basis, I'm sure it changes many people's opinions on this side of the border about our American friends. Are they still our best friends? Are they still our, our number one partner? I want to talk about that and and a survey that was done that I think reflects some of those concerns right now with our next guest. uh, Jack Jedwab is the president of the Association for Canadian Studies, uh, joins us on the program to talk about this. Good morning, Jack. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning, Bill. Well, we'll talk about the Biden statements and and the impact in a second, but let's talk a little bit about this Leger poll, first of all, uh, because I think it's quite pointed. Uh, You know, do you consider the United States to be our closest ally? Uh, The answer, I guess, is still yes, but uh, there's a a little hesitation, I guess, here. Uh, Basically, uh, with some males, I'm not sure exactly why, 69% uh, feel, or 75% male and only 62% females. Uh, so we like them, but I, uh, is this a guarded optimism and, and, you know, with a little bit of trepidation or are we just true blue friends here? I think it's a uh, guarded optimism, as you say, with a little bit of trepidation, you know, usually, uh, when these questions have been asked and, uh, Gallup tends to ask these questions quite frequently. Yeah. Uh, it's usually in the 80% range that we would say are the U S is our closest ally or our best friend or some variation on that here. We're down to about 70%. And, uh, and the one of six Canadians do not feel they're our best uh, or closest ally, and another one in six don't know. So uh, clearly, there's some movement relative to what we've seen in terms of the trend line over the past 20 plus years, where it's been an easy answer that you know no other country on the planet is our closest ally, uh, other than the United States. Is, is it is it the rhetoric we're hearing from some circles? And I don't just mean the political leaders, but south of the border, uh, there's racial tension. Uh, and we. Not to suggest there isn't any racial tension here, too, but we seem to be inundated with this stuff all the time. And I, I, I've heard anecdotally that a lot of us that, that watch what's going on down there think that that's a great nation that seems to be backsliding now. Yeah, I think there's that feeling. And in part, uh, some of this, I, I believe, is a, a bit of a post-Trump phenomenon. Uh, yeah. Relations were a, a bit more tense during the Trump era. And we know Canadians overwhelmingly uh, had unfavorable opinions of uh, Donald Trump. So we're seeing a bit of the sort of... Uh, uh, collateral effect uh, uh, around that, where it isn't because Joe Biden was elected that things changed overnight. Uh, underlying the sort of Trump phenomenon was uh, a 
sort of series of tensions between Canadians and Americans that arose. And I think we saw a bit of that too during the COVID period, even with the election of Joe Biden, where uh, cooperation didn't always seem perfect uh, between us. And so, and the Biden administration also does carry that protectionist leaning approach with it. And so things aren't uh, repaired entirely from some of the concerns and tensions that we saw during the Trump period. Well, because I know some people on this side of the border, I, take the dairy industry, for instance, uh, are still carrying the scars of some of the negotiations with the, the new NAFTA that was uh, hammered out a few years ago and a couple of years ago now anyway. Uh, that You know, we're getting a raw deal and, and they only gave us what they didn't really care about much anyway. I'm not so sure that's a, a proper characterization. Uh, but we, we, we're stung by that in a lot of different ways. And, and then, as you mentioned, the attempt by Trump uh, putting tariffs on some of our goods, uh, you know, we're nagging on some other aspects of the deal, uh, and, and I guess after a while we just we just say, oh, "Look, enough is enough." And in, in as much as that, you know, Canadians will say it that way, we don't retaliate necessarily. But I think we just find to say, "Hey, we're, we're tired of this." Yeah, and actually, there are other aspects of the poll that we did that also make uh, some suggestions that support the view that there's still some real concerns about our relationship with the United States. For example, when Canadians are asked if they thought the United States was a positive influence on international affairs, more people said no than yes, uh, which hasn't been the case uh, historically. Whether the United States is viewed as a progressive society, more Canadians said no than yes. So even though we still consider for the most part, for the most part, our, our closest ally, at least uh, over two thirds of us do, we have some serious concerns about what we see happen in the United States. And that has important reverberations in terms of our relationship. And again, that's without mentioning the economic uh, conversations around trade and negotiations where there have been a lot of bumps and a lot of uh, areas where uh, trust isn't full. Well, and, you know, let's face it, the political landscape has become so polarized on both sides of the border now. And I think there's actually a resentment on this side of the border. And we, I think we saw that reflected last year during the Ottawa uh, occupation, uh, where it was pretty clear that an awful lot of the uh, extremist uh, segments in the United States seem to be filtering up here, at least the, the, their philosophies did anyway. And I think that shattered a lot of people's image of Canada that, no, hey, no, we're, we're not like that. You know, this that we're different. We're more open-minded. And not, I think a lot of us are having some self-doubt right now to say, well, maybe we aren't. Yeah, I think that's true. And as I said, I think some of this is a bit of a post-Trump uh, era. The United States is a very polarized place. I've, I've rarely in my lifetime seen it as polarized as it is, although I suspect there are periods where it was highly polarized and I'm forgetting about but it's very polarized. We, we, we sense that, and we, and we know there's uh, some impact arising from that type of polarization in terms of our relationships with uh, various American businesses, uh, civil society, and so forth. So it's not uh, business as usual in terms of our relationship with the United States. We're still in a post-Trump, vigilant, monitoring things, seeing how things are negotiated and whether they're favorable or unfavorable to us. And again, trust is so important in these types of relationships. And, and there has been some damage, I think, to the trust between our two countries, both politically and in and in uh, relations outside the political arena. And, you know, Jack, you've been following this and studying this stuff for years. Uh, let, let's just circle back to to, to uh, Biden's comments from Tuesday night. Uh, you know, no exceptions by American, etc. As I say, to wild applause from both sides of the house, which rarely happens. Uh, do we take that at face value? Because invariably, there seems to be a lot of discussion behind closed doors after the fact. And, you know, Trump went this way with the negotiations. Uh, they seem to put a little water in the wine. Uh, even though, you know, last year, Biden was talking about Buy America for the auto industry. And it was after Senator Manchin came to Ottawa and a number of other senators approached Biden that he said, OK, it's Buy North American. So and I'm, I'm not suggesting it's, you know, 
that we're going to get off the hook here, but it just seems as if, you know, to, there's the political theater aspect, which they're pretty good at, uh, to get the headline, but there's an awful lot of negotiation that goes on after. Should we be extremely concerned or just, you know, cognizant of the fact that, uh, that this is, this movement is going on, this buy American thing? Because this, uh, Obama started this after the 09 uh, recession and it's, it's always been there, but they always seem to say, oh, wait a second, we've got a pretty good deal going with Canada here. Let's not mess that up. Yeah, and you've got to be able to sort of wade through the rhetoric on this, which isn't always easy because there's clearly some messaging in this uh, that you know is connecting with the American people. And if the American people feel that protectionism is, is protectionism is the way to go, uh, then it's certainly going to have an impact on relations uh, outside the political arena. Even though you're right, Bill, there's a lot of theater in this, and when the negotiations actually take place, the United States, you know, at least the politically does value our country and. And, and has had hundreds of years of good relations with our uh, with our country since since the War of eighteen twelve. Want to go all the way back, but you know we can't uh, take this rhetoric for granted, and we need to be quite vigilant about what it all means. And we'll see going forward uh, what the implications are. Well, and history tells us too that with the Trump uh, situation and the Obama situation, and, and more recently now with Joe Biden, uh, a lot of the pressure that they get to, to kind of you know relax these these mantras uh, comes from the United States. Uh, a lot of them are border states, but other states that do a lot of trade with Canada. Uh, the auto industry, I guess, is a classic example of that, aren't they, Jack? Where they said, look, if you if you eliminate Canada from the supply chain here, uh, it's going to cost us a ton more because it, those we need those resources. We need their raw materials. Uh, so that means our production costs go up, which means prices go up. This is a wrong-headed idea, and that's that's always been the argument. But I guess your point's well taken. We can't just think, well, they'll do it again. Don't worry. We're going to be okay here. Every time this comes up again, uh, we need to be concerned. I think. Oh, I, I think we need to be concerned, and you know, and Canadians are expressing concerns, and that's reflected in the polling that we've done on a variety of fronts when it comes to things going on in the United States and how they may affect us. Uh, it's interesting to contrast with the relation state to province, or in, where it seems, particularly the border uh, states, that things are a lot smoother, and people on the borders and governors and other, you know, in, others that are intervening uh, feel that those relationships are critical and, and it's important to maintain them, and they're less. Uh, enthusiastic about uh, protectionist approaches when you're on our borders and you know there's a lot of movement back and forth and and we benefit respectively from uh, consumers uh, shopping on the other side of the border as just take a small example so uh, so that's an interesting contrast in terms of the uh, rhetoric you don't see uh, at the state level in the United States and the rhetoric you're seeing nationally. Always great to get a snapshot in time as to where we are and what we're thinking about these days. Uh, Jack, as always, thank you for the research you guys do, and thanks for spending some time with us today. No problem, Bill. My pleasure. You have a good day. You too. Jack Jedwab from the Association of Canadian Studies. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We were with you then. We are with you now. We will be with you for as long as it takes. Freedom will prevail. Peace will reign. You will win. Slava Ukraini. That is the uh, president of the European Parliament, uh, Roberto Metsola, who is uh, talking to well, President Zelensky, who's uh, doing the tour, he was in the UK, of course, a couple of days ago and uh, addressing the EU, uh, hoping that Ukraine, of course, will be given membership into that. And the commitment, again, uh, from the European allies that uh, that they're going to be there through thick and thin until this is resolved in Ukraine's favor. Uh, but what about Canada's contribution? What are we doing? And what is NATO doing, for that matter? Uh, because Canada is 
an integral part of, of what we hope is going to be uh, a force that's going to be able to, to win this thing eventually for the Ukrainians in some way, shape, or form. Uh, building brigades. Uh, NATO allies are struggling to shore up Baltic defenses against the Russian threat. This is a kind of a, a, a carryover from what we were talking about last hour. The reporting from David Pouliez from the Ottawa Citizen uh, about uh, some fast tracking for buying new equipment for the Canadian military. And just uh, uh, tied into the commitment that they have with NATO. So what is going on and what is going to be expected of Canada uh, as with some of these challenges that NATO is facing? To talk about this, please to welcome back to the program, Thomas Hughes. Thomas is a postdoctoral fellow at the Canadian Defence and Security Network. Uh, Thomas, great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for this today. No, not at all. Thrilled to be back. Lovely to well, speak well, to you. Th- a couple of related stories here, and I know some people are kind of looking at some of these and saying, well, it really looks as if we're ramping up militarily here. Did, 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 the, NATO, not, uh, did, did the NATO forces know something that they're not telling us about right now, about, about Russia? And we know about their long-term ambitions, but there seems to be a lot of concern and, and other nations besides Canada that are ramping up their military uh, commitments here. Yes, uh, I, I think we do have to be careful how we understand uh, what's happening. Um, the fact that this news is, is coming out uh, more recently or the conversations in the media are coming out uh, recently doesn't mean it's necessarily a really very recent decision. Uh, and I think to understand it, we need to go back just a, a little bit further um, to 2016 when um, NATO, at the request, really importantly, at the request of the Baltic states, um, uh, made the decision to to put four battle groups, is the phrase they used, into four um, Baltic countries, uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and and Poland. And it's called the Enhanced Forward Presence. UK, Canada, Germany, and the US were each leading one of those battle groups in in each of those different countries. And whilst uh, they they wouldn't particularly uh, perhaps like to be called this, they were a tripwire force. The the numbers that were there, just over a 1,000 um, maybe slightly short of 2,000 in, in each of those battle groups. Um, they weren't necessarily going to defeat a concerted invasion, um, but they were there as the deterrent because that would signal that, that NATO is fully involved. Um, so it's a, it's a way of demonstrating in part to Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania and Poland that NATO is committed to your defence. Now, if we come back to today, the challenge comes in of, well, those... That those four sizes are not necessarily going to prevent a concerted invasion. As I said, they're not really designed to do that. But that is a, a sort of cold comfort, if you like, uh, to, to the countries where they're based. So the question then becomes, how many troops, additional troops, do we need to make a really robust defensive presence there? And that's been the conversation that happened last year at the NATO summit in, in Madrid. Uh, and the real conversation has come around, well, how do we ensure that we can get troops to um, the, their place of requirement uh, if needed, or do they need to be pre-positioned there? And it's a really difficult question to answer, and it's a really expensive question um, to answer. And I think as a final point on this, it's, it's important to note as well, at that NATO summit in Madrid, the, the uh, resolve was to create uh, forces up to the brigade size, adding perhaps another thousand to, to the battle groups, and where and when required. Uh, so there is this sense that that they could be surged into a place and that they're sort of prepared to move rather than actually being in, in these countries. What about staffing these brigades, though, Thomas? I mean, we, we know that the Canadian military in particular uh, is having trouble right now. Uh, there are very few recruits. People are not signing up. Uh, people are retiring and leaving the service right now. Is, is that presenting a problem with these commitments? Um, 
without a shadow of a doubt. There, there are a number of problems with the commitments. And I think there is broad awareness that it's, it's not going to happen tomorrow. It, 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 these are going to go, go into the next few years. And, and there's challenges for the other countries in, in providing infrastructure for that. But you're absolutely right. Um, the, the, the question that arises for a lot of the, the countries involved in this is how do we, how do we um, put sufficient forces uh, forward for this, for this particular mission? And the reality is that the, the armed forces in, in Canada and in, in the UK uh, are not as large as they were. And that raises real questions around how do we change that? If we've, if we've made the decision that we do want to contribute um, a, a brigade to this uh, particular venture, how do we ensure that our militaries actually do that? Uh, and that causes us to ask some really difficult questions. There's some brilliant research going on uh, in recent years um, uh, around the military culture, how the military is seen uh, in the civilian world, what impacts uh, recruitment and retention, and, and really focusing on that. Because, um, as you suggest, it's a, it's a significant challenge um, and, and one that the Canadian Armed Forces and the Canadian government and civil society really needs to wrestle with uh, and how we understand what we want the military to be and how that reflects what people who want to join the military see it as being. Well, yeah, I remember a couple of years ago, I guess more than a couple of years ago now, I mean, one of the selling points was, you know, join the Canadian Army, you see the world and get trained in, in you know, any number of different yeah. aspects of this, you know, electronics, whatever you want it to be. Uh, but but I guess that is blunted by some of the stories we've heard about some of the actions in the military, the influence of, of, of right-wing extremist groups within the Canadian military. Uh, it's, I, I don't know, and I, I hate to say this, but it doesn't seem like it's a very attractive place to say, yeah, I want to start my career there. Uh, so, they, I mean, they've got their work cut out for them here. Absolutely. It's, it's a real, a real challenge. And, and those real insidious parts of, of culture that, that you mentioned are, are a huge challenge. There's a brilliant book, uh, called The, The Ones We Let Down by Charlotte Duval Lantois, uh, that came out, I think, last year, uh, that, that's well worth reading. Um, but I think that there is also some, some sort of uh, slightly, <laughs> one could call them lesser significant issues, which still cause a recruitment challenge. I mean, one simple part of this being that you, as part of the military, you have to move very frequently. What does that do for your partner? How do they manage to to um, maintain and develop a career if you're having to move every few years? So there's those sorts of aspects to um, military culture that are not sort of as, as damaging as, as uh, those that, that you talked about, but is still a, a problem. And um, when somebody is thinking about, well, do I want to, what do I want to do with my life? How am I going to develop that? Is, that, is the military actually a, a, a reasonable career path or are we going to look somewhere else because I could be potentially paid uh, more or um, because I want to uh, have a more settled and, and stable um, geographical location for, for the duration of, of my career. And those sorts of questions are a real challenge because it, it, it starts to change that understanding of how the military functions and and that is that is really not easy. And as I say, that requires not just the military rethinking what it is, but also the civilian population, the government understanding uh, what it wants its military to be. Well, and we've talked around this issue, I guess, over the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. uh, as you know, we have some very, very incredible, historically respectable uh, 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 regiments here in the Hamilton area, and I've mm -hmm. talked to some of the representatives of that, and the, the consensus seems to be our soldiers are brilliant, they're well-trained, we just don't have enough of them uh, to be able mm -hmm. to fulfill some of the stuff that we would like to do in situations like that. 
And and now you have to wonder, okay, what can they do? And, and you know, we're talking about deployment here and trying to build these up to the brigades, as you say, these tripwire brigades. Uh, but what do we train them and then just do they sit in Petawawa waiting to be called or are they we have to be stationed over there? What 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 how do you do something like this? Absolutely. And that, that, again, is part of that big question. And the onus here is, is also on the countries to which they would be deployed to ensure that the infrastructure is ready to receive them. If, if the infrastructure is not there in Latvia um, to support the number of additional troops, then there's little point in them in them going there. So that that's a challenge that, that's going on as well. But as you say, I mean, it, it, it's one of those awkward positions where nobody ever really wants to have to use their military, or certainly we wouldn't say we don't want to have to use the military. Um, but it's trying to find that balance between having sufficient troops who are uh, available. And we know that the international environment changes very quickly. And, and it's really hard to to predict with, with any degree of accuracy how many troops we're going to need in um, 5, 10, 15 or, or further years down the road. And so that's also where the reserve forces come in. Uh, and that adds a whole additional nuance to the conversation around Canada's force size. So what's the role of our reservists? Um, how do we ensure that the reservists are well motivated, that we are attracting people to the reserves, and that they are also able to mobilize quickly, uh, if necessary, uh, to support these sorts of uh, operations? Because um, by having that reserve force, it means that you don't necessarily have those folks sitting sitting around in in, in Petawawa um, doing nothing. If you like, that's not very fair, I know, but you don't have them sitting there um, not performing the role for which they're they're being trained. So I think the reserves are a really interesting area to look at over the next few years in Canada as well. You mentioned that this is not a new story. It's not as if they decided mm. this last week. There's there's, there's yeah. a, a history here and a background to this. But okay. the fact that it's happening, and, and it didn't happen like this five, six, ten years ago, uh, is there a concern that, that the, the, the disruption, shall we say, in the Baltic uh, mm. is, is going to be with us for quite some time? I, I think so. I, I think that's a very fair fair statement. Um, one of the things which I think is also really important here, we often hear that, that narrative about NATO encroaching on Russia, which is, is ridiculous, frankly. But it's really important to note here that the request is not a sort of centralized NATO request to send more troops into the... Uh, it's these countries saying, we are uncomfortable with our current security defense situation. Uh, we want to use our uh, alliance structure within NATO to increase the number of troops that are here. So it's these countries saying we are we are uncomfortable with that. I think there's broad acknowledgement that Russia would be hard pressed to engage in a large scale military operation uh, alongside their invasion of Ukraine. Uh, so I, I think in the, the short term, there's an understanding again that, that these troops perhaps wouldn't have an immediate function. Um, but Going forward, there is real uncertainty uh, around what Russia's intent is. Uh, and within that uncertainty, there's an increasing concern that it, it might be uh, resulting in overt offensive action and aggression against these these countries. So it absolutely stems from, from their fears. Uh, we can have a discussion about how reasonable those fears are, but it, it's absolutely coming from from that understanding that this, the defence security situation in in that part of Europe is is not necessarily one that, that's particularly pleasant for people in that region. You talked about well the, the recruitment and, and whether or not you know the Canadians have the ability here to be able to, to respond uh, with the personnel that they need. UK has the similar problem. Uh, yep. Is that problem become exacerbated when the, the Scandinavian countries, it looks like inevitably, are going to join NATO mm -hmm. as well? Are they going to be making the same requests? 
That's a great question. My, my response to that would probably be no in the short term. Uh, I think that the real, um, the real concern is in uh, the, the countries where the enhanced forward presence already exists. Uh, that said, um, when you look at the force structure for those Scandinavian countries, how they um, develop their, their military uh, posture, particularly Finland, uh, how, they, how they develop their, their military, um, what that military consists of, it, it represents uh, a more robust military force uh, without that NATO uh, forward presence there. Now, that said, I think what we will see is probably uh, if those countries join NATO is uh, an increasing number of NATO exercises uh, in those countries. We will probably see um, some deployment of, of NATO troops on a semi semi-permanent basis into those countries, or at least some um, non-Scandinavian assets being put into those countries for, for a time and a season. Um, so in a sense, yes, I think we, we will see NATO's forces stretched a little more thinly uh, in that sense, but that is backed up by, um, or that, that's kind of offset by the significant capability enhancement and personnel enhancement that the Scandinavian countries will also bring. Um, but it is, it's a great question to ask, I think, around um, if these countries of Sweden and Finland do join NATO, what is NATO actually going to do with them as part of the alliance? Um, is it going to put troops there um, on that semi-permanent basis or, or not? And and that's a difficult decision for them as well, because in a sense, that's also part of a potential escalation, mm -hmm. uh, if you like. It, it, it starts to come around that conversation of, of why are we deploying so many troops into Europe? Well, uh, a lot of concern is people saw some of these headlines and say, whoa, 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 what's going on? Now all of a sudden it's front of center with us. It's always great to get your perspective on this, though, Thomas. Thank you so much for this. Today. Not at all. Uh, Take thank, care. Thanks. Great to speak. Thomas Hughes, uh, postdoctoral fellow at the Canadian Defense and Security Network. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.